Well, hello. I want to start uh, the sermon today by showing you an image which will probably be pretty familiar to you. Does anyone know this image? Seen that before? Uh, does anyone know who it is? Rosie the, Rosie the Riveter. All right, so this is Rosie the Riveter uh, with the famous We Can Do It uh, poster and banner behind her. Uh, this uh, was uh, designed in 1942 when most of the able-bodied men in the United States were off to war. Uh, but the munitions to fight the Second World War still needed to be made. So government officials realized that there was what they called an untapped workforce that would be essential to the success of the war effort. So that workforce was U.S. women. And so Rosie the Riveter uh, was created to encourage women uh, to work in factories to help support the war effort. And in the process, Rosie became a symbol of the ability and the potential of women. And at that time, that was an unlikely cohort of contributors uh, to contribute to the workforce and the war effort. They were unlikely heroes of the day. Now, the second picture I'd like to show you is one that was painted by Norman Rockwell and appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Now, if you look closely, you'll see just a faint uh, halo around Rosie the Riveter. Can you see that? Now, I think that's significant for a couple reasons. One, it's a little bit of a wink from Norman to everyone who reads uh, or read this magazine or would see this painting. It's not just that Rosie is a saint to contributing to the war effort, but she's also a saint because this entire image is uh, an homage or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was inspired by a very famous painting by Michelangelo that appears in the Sistine Chapel of Isaiah the prophet. And so Rosie is not just an unlikely hero, she's an unexpected saint, saving the day. And that's what we want to look at today in our ongoing series, Unlikely Heroes of the Bible, as we see what we can learn from a woman who takes a stand in a patriarchal male-dominated system built to overlook her. And how, if we can learn from her, every one of us can learn how generosity can save our lives. Does that sound interesting? So this week we're looking at Abigail and what she can teach us about generosity, namely that generosity of all kinds can connect us to what is good in life and spare us from the things that take life away. So uh, I'm going to read the passage to you. It's not projected today or in your bulletin, so you have to listen to me. And uh, here it goes. It's a long one, but it's, man, it is a long one. It's a long one. I didn't realize how long it was, but this is 1 Samuel chapter 25. A certain man in Maon had property there at Carmel, and he was very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, and he was, and which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. When David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were here with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men. 
since we've come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message from David, and they gave it in his name, and then they waited. Nabal Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with him, while 200 stayed behind with the supplies. And one of David's, and one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were with them in the fields, nothing was ever missing. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her. She met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing, he's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battle. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord is fulfilled for my Lord... Every good thing he promised, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you. If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. 
So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So, it's a long story. A lot of interesting details in there. Uh, And I think of all the things we can learn, and I've actually, less than a year ago, I preached this on a completely different topic, um, because Abigail is such a compelling figure in a lot of ways. I think what we can learn the most today is a lot about generosity of all kinds, particularly that generosity is something that connects us to what is good in life and spares us from the things that take life away. And Abigail's example, I think, can help us realize foundational things in life, help us remember freeing promises, and it also serves as a reminder of the greatest example of the power of generosity. The first thing I like to look at is what this can help us realize. So Nabal in this passage, I think he serves as a great object lesson or example of what we need to realize about generosity. So Nabal is a a very rich man. It says he had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. So by describing Nabal like this, the author is trying to make two points. One, he has an enormous amount of livestock. He's loaded. And the second thing is this is the high time of year. This is the shearing time. And that may not mean a lot to us these days, but that's the time where uh, Nabal's not just making money off of milk from the goats and his livestock or from meat that he sells, but he's also making money off of the wool that he shares, shears. And so this is the high time. This is when Nabal has extra and surplus. Uh, as you can see, he's having this great, huge banquet. It's a time of year when rich ranchers were expected to be particularly generous to those around them. Throwing feasts that benefited others was quite common. But at his richest time of the year, the very rich Nabal is called a fool because he won't share any of his resources with David. Now, I think this would be an unwise move just on its own because to sort of Someone with 600 fighting men to sort of do something that slaps him in the face, probably not smart any time of the year, right? But in the Bible, to be called a fool indicates something else that's true of Nabal. So in the Bible, a fool is someone who makes choices as if there is no accountability to something greater. So in uh, Bible language, that would be someone who doesn't believe that there's a God who's watching. So in Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool says there is no God. Now, according to recent surveys, 90% of Americans believe that there is a God. So you might be thinking, whew, I guess I'm off the hook here. <laughs> I, I, what a relief. You know, that's great. I'm not a fool at all. But that's not exactly the way that Scripture talks about what it means to be wise as opposed to a fool. So being considered a fool or wise in Scripture has much less to do with what you believe and much more to do with the decisions that you make. So do I believe in God philosophically? Yes, but I could still be a fool. I can believe in God. I can call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, whatever, and still live in a way that shows I don't really believe that God is real or there's any accountability in my life. It's a sense that I'm only accountable to myself that makes me a fool. And this can apply to any area of our lives. 
But today, the focus is on generosity. So if I handle my money however I see fit, with no sense of accountability and checking only with myself about what I do with my resources, in that sense, I show that I have no sense of real accountability and that I'm a fool. But even if I don't subscribe to any belief in a higher power, but live as if I have to give an account for how I use my resources, then I exercise wisdom. You know, uh, a little bit ago, I read this article that was on this thing called secular tithing. I don't know if you've heard of this, but the article uh, detailed what some are calling a growing trend in our society, the idea of secular tithing, that is, setting aside parts of our income to give away uh, that has nothing to do with a connection to any type of faith. A lot of uh, uh, people of faith have been doing this for a long time. It's often called tithing. So some people of faith will even set aside 10% of whatever they earn to give away, usually to their local place of worship. Well, people are realizing that there's a benefit to this, that if it's not a part of who you are and what you do, you could be missing out on. So that might sound a little crazy to you. The idea that anyone would give 10% of their income away might be hard to believe, or very familiar, depending on your background. But currently, the idea is spreading among folks who don't hold any particular expression of faith. So in giving your wealth away, an argument for secular tithe, uh, Sierra Black laments the fact that she's not as generous as her great-grandmother. So her great-grandmother was a, a devout tither to her church. And as you read the article, it's easy to get the sense that she feels like she's missing out on something crucial to enjoying life and making a difference in her community. And one of the things she points out is that in the middle class of America, of which she's a part, that tends to be the least giving of resources uh, in our society, giving away about 2.5% of their income, while other groups, like the working poor, are the most generous segments of our society, giving away about 4.5% of their income. And as a result, she comes to this conclusion. I think it's time to make secular tithing a middle-class trend. Those of us who don't go to church every Sunday may not have the deeply ingrained tradition of giving that my great-grandmother had when she put in her little envelope and offering plate each week. That's no excuse for not giving our share. And her sentiment was echoed by articles and posts that I read that seemed to indicate that people from all sorts of backgrounds, religious, not religious, feel very uncomfortable about not having consistent patterns of giving and generosity in their lives. And the overarching sense I get is that many people feel like they're missing out on something if they're not being more generous. And I think that the people who wrote those articles are demonstrating in a biblical sense that they're not fools. And you can tell that they have a sense that the resources they have in their lives are not just for them, that the goal of having things is not to hoard them, that there's a greater purpose for material things than holding on to them as mine, and that that process of holding on to it takes away from their experience of life. If you notice the way that Nabal describes his things. In verse 11, it says, why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it away to men coming from who knows where? His response is full of eyes and mice, my bread and water, my meat. And he misses the foundational understanding that can keep us from living like fools. And that foundation is this, that everything is a gift from God. 
And the moment that we begin to think that we are solely responsible for our good fortune, that we are owed the ability to do whatever we wish with what we've been given, that generosity is simply an add-on to life and not a foundational necessity, the moment that we forget grace, our lives start slipping away. Nabal is a fool because he doesn't realize that everything he has is really a gift. And by neglecting to be generous, his life, in his case, literally slips away. And we tend to think that if we have more money in the bank, or we have more things, that we'll feel more secure and more happy. But it doesn't work that way. There's lots of research, resources and researches that... Re- Research and resources that point out this very thing. You know, an article was fairly recently published in the online journal sciencemag.org. It was entitled, Spending Money on Others Promotes Happiness. You can kind of see where this is going. And what they found is that after we have our basic needs met, you know, food, water, education for our kids, things like that, once our basic needs are met, uh, there is little to no little to no correlation between the money we spend on ourselves and our experience of happiness. Little to no. And they do different experiments around this. So, for example, they would track people who received bonuses at the end of the year to see what they did with their money. And those who practiced pro-social giving, meaning they spent their bonuses on other people, invested it in other things that were important to them besides themselves, they showed a jump in their registry of happiness, if that's the right way to put it. And those who spent the money on themselves showed nothing. There's something happening here. Generosity isn't meant just to be an add-on. It's something that brings life to us and keeps our life from slipping away. And I think that we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we try to create a sense of security or happiness by holding on to our resources or spending them exclusively on ourselves. This has the opposite effect of draining the good things out of our lives. And I think David really exemplifies this. And his story here highlights our need not only to realize that everything is a gift from God, but to continue to remember this as well. What should we remember? So in Nabal, we see someone who doesn't seem to realize that all the abundance he has is a gift from God that he should use to bless others. In David, however, we see someone who has a need He and his men are living in the wilderness. They're on the run from King Saul, and they need provisions. And so for David, the question isn't whether he realizes that God is the source of his overflowing blessing, but because he's not in the position of feeling the overwhelming blessing and abundance. Instead, the question for David is whether he can remember that God will provide for all his needs. So when Abigail comes to him, do you notice what she says to him? She says, you're going to be king. She says, your enemies are chasing you, but they will fail and you'll be protected. She says, all of these things have been promised to you by God. Abigail's plea to David is to remember. Remember the goodness of God. Remember the source of all the gifts that we have. Remember that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. Verse 38 says, When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, 
My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed of having avenged himself. There's an implication here. The implication is uh, knowing God is the ultimate provider frees us to live with no regrets. The idea here, I think, is when God does what he has promised, or when you experience the goodness of God that he has intended for you, you don't want to have any extra regrets. Trust him now in the wilderness so that when you receive all that he's promised you, you won't have any regrets. How often, when we later gain some perspective, do we look back on the choices that we've made? Things that we've said and wish that we could take them back. We get worried about something working out or we stress out about something and take some action, like David almost takes, that we think will bring us immediate satisfaction. If I wipe these people out, And take what I feel I'm owed. I'll feel vindicated. I'll feel relief. I'll have what I need. So we make choices that are based more on fear, anger, or stress than hope. Then later when we see how God was working, we wish we could have remembered God's promises and believed them in the wilderness. For David, he almost does something horrible. He's about an inch from becoming a person that none of us wants to be a murderous oppressor. And although David may not have as much money as Nabal, he has something that Nabal doesn't have, and that's an army, military power. And not only that, David also has a blind spot. You see, it's much easier for David to turn the other cheek when the person he's dealing with has more power than him. So if you back up the story right before this, is King Saul's chasing David. David was running in the wilderness with 600 men. King Saul goes to sleep in this cave, and David is in the cave and has a chance to kill him. Now, when it's, another, when it's a king, he's able to remember the promises of God. But God's promised him that he'll be king and not to avenge himself, and he doesn't kill the man who's chasing him. But when it's not a king, with someone without military power, We may have some food and provisions, but in many other ways, is not David's equal. All of a sudden, he's ready to kill him. And David struggles with this his entire life. Fortunately, here he has Abigail to help him remember the promise of God before he does something terrible. But it's not just Abigail's words that help him remember There's a reminder here as well. It says in verse 24, She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. And it goes on to say, um, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak. So here we have a lady of position who has done absolutely nothing wrong, falling on her knees, a very humbling position, offering herself as a sacrifice to save two obstinate men from great sins. This is actually the greatest act of generosity in this passage. Abigail models generosity here, not in her gifts to David, 
but in her willing act of sacrifice for the good of others. And in this way, she not only saves both men from calamity, uh, Nabal actually just for the evening because it doesn't work out for him, uh, but she prefigures or foreshadows or gives us an early glimpse of the actions of another innocent sacrifice, one of a person of even greater position, a king who humbled himself even more than she did, the King Jesus who did the same thing for us in the greatest, most unlikely act of generosity the world has ever seen. It says this of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus went to the cross to save us from our own ignorance, our own obstinance, our own need to justify and avenge ourselves, our own sins. And so Abigail not only reminds David of the character of God and of the true generosity of God through her actions, but she also points forward to the full revelation of the generosity of God that will be illustrated in Jesus. And her actions illustrate God's generosity while pointing forward to the ultimate illustration. And that is that Jesus gave himself. And this becomes a reminder to all of us of God's goodness, his promises, his commitment, and his overwhelming generosity that can motivate us to make more generous decisions ourselves. So, I'm going to close this talk today just with a short exercise to kind of help us sit in this place of what, what does generosity even look like in my life? So I want you to, if you don't mind, just maybe close your eyes so you can focus just a little bit. And I'm just going to pray and then uh, offer a suggestion and maybe some illustrations that might hit where you are. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to let your presence be here with us. Uh, that no matter how effective or not effective this sermon is, your presence would be felt and powerful and real and practical. Come, Holy Spirit. Now, wherever you are in life, I just want to start by asking a question that only you can answer. Just keep your eyes closed and focused. Um, and that question would be, what is your stretch point? What would be a way to be generous that would be a little risky for you? Maybe it's not climbing Mount Everest, but it's the next stretch point for you. What is that? It would make you a little uncomfortable. Where in your life is that point? And here's a few questions that I found along the way that might help you think about that. One would be, Lord, have I overaccumulated? 
Have I allowed unwise spending and accumulating debt to inhibit my giving, my generosity? Have I said there's not enough left to give while maintaining giving habits that make sure there's not enough? Or maybe this one. Lord, things are tight. I feel squeezed to make ends meet. Where do I have some power or influence over other people in my life? How can I use it to be generous to them? What's your stretch point? Father, as we end this exercise, I just pray that for every person who has some understanding of what that stretch point would be, I pray even now you would just give them a picture or an understanding of how they can lean into being more generous at that point. Even if it means trusting, even if it's a little risky. And I also pray that every step towards that, every leaning into that, that you would meet us, that you would show us that everything's a gift by the way that you meet our needs. And I pray that as we learn this, all sorts of new life would begin to be born in us that'll free us to be more and more generous people in every area of our lives. Amen. Amen.